Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital editor. This Valentine's Day, we're inviting you to celebrate your love of Martin Scorsese, the cover boy of our January-February issue for his film Silence. Scorsese is currently the subject of a retrospective and exhibit at the Museum of the Moving Image. A few weeks back, I hosted a live edition of the podcast following the museum's screening of The King of Comedy with Nicholas Rapold, Eric Hines, and Nick Pinkerton. The King of Comedy is often overlooked in Scorsese's work, but it's an uncanny exploration of fame and those obsessed by it. Robert De Niro stars as Rupert Pupkin, a wannabe stand-up comedian who lives in his mother's basement and has a tenuous grasp on anything besides celebrities. Rupert successfully corners his idol, Jerry Langford, played by Jerry Lewis, a late-night talk show host, and sends his demo tape to his offices. After being rejected, Rupert and fellow Langford-obsessive Masha, played by the brilliant Sandra Bernhard, kidnap Langford and force his show's producers to let Rupert do his act on live television. Here's our discussion of the film. Nothing weird about hosting a show after watching this, right? Um, <laughs> nothing at all. Yeah, I think actually it would be good, and not in a self-centered way, to start by talking about the host in this film, Jerry Lewis, who was briefly the host of his own talk show, one of the most expensive failures of late night television of all time. You should look it up. It's kind of a, an amazing story. Because like part of the reason why the, the actual Jerry Lewis talk show failed was because Jerry Lewis, obviously, if you know anything about him, he's somebody who could never not have the camera on him at all times. And in this film, he's just so understated and but he's still him. He's still like throttling people and going, you know, and making these faces. So I thought it would be interesting to maybe sort of talk about how Scorsese uses Jerry, interestingly. Well, when the movie came out, I believe a lot of the scuttlebutt kind of went around the idea that this Jerry Langford character was based, perhaps not that loosely, on Johnny Carson. That was that was what a lot of the talk went, went around, who was known to be, of course, somebody who was broadcast into Homes Across America five nights a week, but also someone who in his private life was very remote, very much kept to himself, and was not known to be an exceedingly warm man. However, I think watching it now, especially if you're somebody who has sort of kept an eye on how Jerry Lewis's public persona has evolved and the sort of combative and very tetchy relationship that he has with his public, especially as he's gotten a bit older and really has less fucks to give. Like, it seems very much like a self-portrait. And, and I believe Jerry Lewis has said as much. Like, this is the movie in which I am playing someone closest to myself. At the same time, it's interesting how little we get to know him. You know, we only see him in reaction to Rupert Pupkin. We don't actually see him, we don't get to sort of see behind the curtain very much. Yes, we see where he lives. He's got we that see- little dog. <laughs> we, we, you see little details like you see the dog you see his apartment you see his which is, place which on is the island. Lonesome Rhodes' apartment from a face in the crowd yes by exactly. the way like to a hundred a hundred percent yeah and the fact that he's eating alone and yeah. just like yeah you know, the, 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 the solo settings in both environments mm-hmm. um, so you get things like that you get that sense of him being a lonely man but at the same time like I like how the script 
it doesn't allow us to have that other read of maybe he deserves this or maybe he's asking yeah. for it. maybe there's some aspect of his life that asks for this it's not at all he's the guy who took, hosts the talk show and whenever we see him he's being uh, being invaded right yeah you never really get beyond that opening you know the image that kind of sets the is the metaphor for the whole thing of you know outside looking in or i guess you know the hand on the glass you know there is i mean there is the very difficult moment which I find incredibly discomforting where he actually gets free of his cocoon of tape and after he realizes that he's been held hostage with a dart gun, smacks Sandra Bernhardt across the face. And yeah. it's, I mean, it's very, very nasty. Yeah. And it, I mean, nobody gets away scot-free in this movie and, and certainly Jerry Langford. That's, the, I mean, the last that we see of him other than him taking some tape off of his pant cuffs. Well, he's looking so covetously at the televisions. Like, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's not just mad because this guy, like, took him and imprisoned him. He's mad because this guy's taken over his show. Like, mm-hmm. it's, like, such a clear, like, he's behind the glass now, right? And there's, he, I mean, there's nothing necessary about that blow to the face that no. he deals to Masha. Like, that's a very callous and nasty thing. Yeah. yeah you, you don't get any, the satisfaction of seeing him chastened in some way or like he's learned a lesson somehow through his ordeal. Right. Do, do you think he was directed to run like <laughs> his, <laughs> his comedic self or do you think that was his own little touch? Well, I mean, there's that whole sequence which kind of comes to a screeching halt with the woman at the phone booth and you should only get cancer. <laughs> where it's it's very much like you're watching, I don't know, the delicate delinquent or something right. like that. He's got this weird floaty, bouncy <laughs> walk as he's you know, strutting down like Sixth Avenue and right. you sort of ask yourself, like, is this actually happening? Because it is a movie that sort of shifts in and out of ostensible reality and fantasy sequences so frequently. And yeah, it's, it's this weird thing where he's sort of skipping his way through midtown Manhattan and everybody's jollily waving him along. Yeah, it, it, it definitely plays with registers of realism in, in some strange ways. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that aspect of street theater that, that he's, so it's, you know, it's almost how he's imagining himself on the street. Half the time you don't even, yeah, you don't even know what, what the exact register of reality is going on because he clearly gets such pleasure about walking down the street but at the same time controlling his performance while he's on the street. Right, because there's a whole conversation with Masha where he's like, well, tell me why he does that. And she says, oh, because he feels safe. And it's like, no, he wants to be recognized. He wants his loving public around him. Like, it's one of the most unsafe things you could do, which is what happens, right? Yeah, I think I I would love to talk more about this sort of slippage between reality and non and fantasy or or the realm of performance because i think again you know nick you sort of alluded you you did not sort of you definitely <laughs> alluded to it in your intro where you know you're talking about it, it's something that definitely runs through all of scorsese's films and that there isn't really any necessarily any transformation of any of these characters that they're all just sort of like terrible and they really don't evolve well, I will, I will say this. I think something that's very, very central from the get-go is the relationship between personality as asserted, personality as represented, and who you in fact are. It's right there at the top of Mean Streets, the monologue that comes at the beginning of Mean Streets, which I think is so key to unlocking Scorsese. You don't make up for your sins in the church. You do it in the streets. You do it at home. All the rest is bullshit. And this 
idea of having to reckon with the mask and the face beneath. And it's there, I think, in all of the films to a certain extent. Part of what makes King of Comedy, I think, sort of a tough pill to swallow is particularly the character of Rupert Pupkin. There's no slippage between the mask and face. And every time I watch the movie, I'm looking for it. Is there a minute when Rupert Pupkin isn't playing a part? And I can't find it at all. I think Masha is a character who's a lot more actually touching in a way Mm. because there's something very human about her. This, you know, this naked need, this actual like sexual desire, which like has Rupert Pupkin ever had sex in his life? Does he actually even want to? I mean, there's a scene where he's on the threshold with Diane Abbott and uh, he leaves her with the admonition, get lots of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> like there's something very inhuman well, about this guy. But also the fact that he would take his most prized possession, his autograph book, this thing that is like totemic, mm. this most important thing in his life, like on a date with this woman he hasn't, like, it's like, well, what does that even mean? Well, and I, <laughs> I, I think, I think everything is right there in that date scene because you see it throughout. He's not talking to Diane Abbott at all he is talking to an imaginary cameraman over her shoulder Mm -hmm. he is completely incapable of having any sort of like human discourse whatsoever and that is i think part of what again makes this just such a tough movie is that slippage never really comes i think there's like half a second when he's out in uh, you know Jerry's uh, weekend house, where you see him panic for maybe half a second, then immediately switches into his next role, which is the aggrieved little guy. <laughs> right. You know, it's another it's another part that he goes rolls right into. Well, I was going to say the, the, the I, wouldn't, I don't know if this is slippage. I don't know if this is when the mask comes off, but the it's. I mean, I think some of the most honest moments are during his performance. You know, but they, are they? Well, his mom's not dead. No, I know. Or is it a, it's his bait situation? <laughs> well, like, I think really, I don't no, know. No, I know. No, I mean, obviously, the, some of the details are not true at all. But there's something about the darkness. It's, it's when, this, when it slips from, from bad jokes to just surreal darkness that it starts feeling like, well, maybe this is the moment when he's finally on stage and like everything he wanted. Now we're going to get some element of some the person of behind exorcism. Well, and, and what I was thinking about in watching it tonight was I started thinking about how there's that story of how, you know, Scorsese had made these movies for hot, these boxcar Bertha, like these sort of films that were like getting further away from, from what he was supposed to be doing or what he could have been doing. He has that big conversation with John Cassavetes and John Cassavetes says, you should be making films about what you know. I think he was sleeping on the floor during the filming of Minnie and Moskowitz. And, and, and that's sort of the turning point that Scorsese talks about. I was like, okay, right, I'm going to go back and make movies about what I know. And that entire monologue is about, you know, th- that whole stand-up act is somebody basically going from what they know. I'm from New Jersey. This is my story. Here's my, here's my dad. Here's my mom. And it's like this dark flip side of Scorsese's own career. And it's like become this incredible autobiographical moment. I mean thinking about this while watching it you go you go upstairs and you see the like very elaborate like storyboard mm-hmm. that uh i don't know 12 year old martin scorsese made of this would-be roman epic uh starring like richard burton and you can see very easily that 12 year old were it not for 
certain other attributes for a certain like <laughs> assertiveness and for certainly a certain amount of genius that's not that far from somebody who is waiting outside of the Jerry Langford show with an autograph book it's it's very telling touching I don't know uh, the photograph of like a 12 year old Jerry Lewis on the mantelpiece uh, when they when they go out to the weekend house you know th this is a kid who's a New Jerseyite, a uh, child of sort of second-tier vaudeville performers. All of these people know that they're but for the grace of God or they're but for preternatural talent and stick to they could very easily be a pupkin. And, I mean, it, it's telling, and I'd forgotten about this fact, that the voice of Rupert Pupkin's mother is Catherine Scorsese. <laughs> Well, something that hit me watching this again was that for someone who is so on all the time and is they're so clearly deranged that one of the suggestions of what good comedy is that good comedy is subversive. You know, in this moment that you think he's actually being very earnest and honest with all this like very sick personal stuff inside of his life, maybe that's just yet another thing that he's come up with because it's it seems like because it seems so wrong that would be funny to him because he's just so completely enmeshed in this like squeaky clean world of you know celebrity and performance that it's like well wouldn't it be hilarious if that's like my mom's an alcoholic wouldn't that be hilarious I mean, do you know what you mean the, the pattern that the movie establishes is that everything shot on video is fantasy right and that everything shot on film is actually happening that at least insofar as we can figure it out is the pattern that the movie f puts down. So if the monologue that we see, I mean, we see Diane Abbott in the bar and Charles Scorsese in the bar responding to the monologue <laughs> as though it's what we're, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to say. If it's true to the pattern that the film establishes up to that point, and I mean, there again, I think it's very close to Taxi Driver, the ending of which I think is always difficult to suss out because you have Travis Pickle after he's blown the hell out of this cat house. Like, he seems to not serve any jail time whatsoever for that. Yes. He has a thankful letter yes. from Iris's parents back home, and he's, like, back driving a hack a week later. And is that, in fact, what happens to Travis Pickle? Or is that... You know, the cinema of the self. Is this mm -hmm. like Travis Bickle's projection of what he would like to see happening as he's sitting on his sofa going, right. I don't know. I, I'd like to think it actually happened. <laughs> and that his vigilante justice was recognized for the noble act it was. <laughs> But that's just me. Like, like Iris just goes back to seventh grade. It's, it's fine. <laughs> Well, but I, but I mean, I, I, did, I, I was thinking about Taxi Driver a ton while watching this. I mean, more than I, I remember when I first saw it. I mean, just this extended ballad of humiliation, you know, yeah. and all these echoing, you know, scenes from between them. They, they become twinned in this really like dark mirror between the two. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit that I talk about in the piece where, you know, famously in Taxi Driver, there's that moment where Travis Bickle is being... Uh, 
he's being turned down for about the 20th time and he's sitting on the payphone in the lobby and the camera sort of carts over because it's just too painful to watch it. And the key difference here is the camera doesn't cart over yeah. at all. It actually just bears mordant witness right. to this litany of humiliations. And, and as Nick alluded to, there's no satisfying violence where you're like, oh, thank God the guy got murdered. But <laughs> to relieve it, to relieve that tension. Yeah, the violence is just pop culture. Is the violence. Yeah, or just the strangeness. Like that, because I mean, obviously, like Eric Andre or like that one season of Louis C.K. where they just explore just like the hollow strangeness of talk shows that we have, we all just accept. And this really dives into that in a way that is super uncomfortable and really insightful because I mean, I remember I saw a John Jost film where it was, I can't remember the name now, but it's sort of like this scene with this couple and they're, they're talking and it's, it's the television with this, like the tonight show is superimposed on this, the man's head while he's lying in bed. And, and, and John Jost said that it was because these talk shows, they're about laughter and they come on at night when people should be ostensibly talking to each other or having sex. And it's like this thing that replaces sex in a lot of bedrooms. And so the idea that it would sort of, or just how strange it is. And then we all just are like, no, it's fine. It's just fine. Part of what makes the movie interesting and gives it some of its tensile strength, though, is the fact that I get the feeling that Scorsese really loves talk shows. Yes. He loves the producers. He loves the lawyers. He loves the like security guy downstairs. If it were just a like blanket indictment of the emptiness of pop culture, I don't think it would be nearly as interesting a no, movie no, as yeah. it is. Yeah, no, I mean, he, they're, they're, he loves all these like animals and the menagerie of like of of like New York and showbiz all together. You know, it's 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 almost like the world of the talk show is like another stage in the series of stages in, in, in New York. Yeah. I mean, for God's sake, he's the director and he's like <laughs> cracking up at director. Rupert yeah. Pumpkin's monologue. Yeah. Cameo, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's Midtown too. I mean, it's also like any knowledge of Midtown knows that's throughout Midtown. Like this sort of this, these shows are being put on and there are all these people have all these jobs and Scorsese knows that. And of course he's going to have an affection for that. If it was set in LA, it would be very, very different. I'm sure. I think there would be more distance from these environments and it might be more satirical than it is. In fact, in, instead it's just, it's all affectionate. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think probably on the page, it is a pretty dyspeptic yeah. movie. Yeah. And I think part of what makes it work is the fact that it is counterbalanced a bit by the evident fondness that he has for that entire milieu. Yeah. yeah. Well, even, you know, when Cedric Berthard is just like screaming at Robert De Niro and clearly everyone around is like, oh my God, that's Sandra Berthard screaming at Robert De Niro. Like all these, like these people aren't extras. They're just like on the street and they're like stopping and laughing at the this. Well, and then they're also, but well, they're also like, Terrified. Two members of the Clash were there. I feel like there's yes. They're not, they're not just happened to be walking past. <laughs> no, they were street scum or what street scum. They were positioned there. It's the credit. I don't think it's just people walking. No, past. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, there are some real reacts, though. No. <laughs> I just yeah. think that's regardless. I think that's how most New Yorkers would react in that moment, whether or not they recognize those two people. It just becomes a show. It's another right. moment where like theater happens on the street. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's a phenomenal New York film. I mean, it's amazing in terms of, you know, and, and Sandra Bernhardt is 
amazing in it. And, and it's so interesting to sort of, as, as I get older and I see this film over parts of my time, her performance gets better and better yeah. because it's further removed from my knowledge of who she was in the 80s, where she's this sort of big personality, sort of a, a bit too much. Her whole thing was being too much everything. And in the 80s, she was kind of, she stood out. I mean, she became a star in the 80s, mm-hmm. which is an amazing thing that the 80s could support people like that. But then yeah. where do they go as a career? What other parts do they get? We don't get to see nearly enough of her after this. And she's an incredible performer. Whereas like it wants, I almost want her to sort of reappear again at a young point in 2017 because I feel like we could actually support an actor like that in, in, in different types of roles. I mean, Nick, you were talking about how, you know, you were thinking a lot of um, Taxi Driver during this and sort of how they reflect and refract each other. Were other films percolating in your mind? I'm going to sidestep this question because I was just something popped in my head for some reason when you were talking. <laughs> That's about. perfectly fine. Um, well, because we were talking about, the, about talk shows earlier, and I was just thinking that I was thinking about talk show as like a home. It's like seeing famous people entertain in, in the sense of like entertain hosts, like entertaining right. guests, you know. And and it's it basically a talk show is like having a really cool dinner party that that someone else is throwing that you can just be there and observe. I mean, what what glimpses we have of his home life, whether we can tell if it's some actually, yeah, psycho situation yeah. or not. I mean, the, the talk show can function as that, you know, and, and then when he goes up and does his routine, it's all about his own family. So I don't know, I don't have a fully worked out thought there, but just yeah. something about the talk show being like this bizarre home away from home. Right, because the, there's just like that one, there's that one shot of when he first does his monologue, when he's, rehe- you know, so when he's taping it or just rehearsing it in front of the Xeroxed audience. And it's just so chilling because it's like, what space of a house is like that? Because it's all silver. <laughs> it's all silver floors. It's all silver walls. It's like he's in this metal box. Like he's inside what you would imagine a television to look like. And that audience is like Xeroxed right in front of him. And it's, again, clearly Scorsese very intelligent, like not allowing you to actually hear what he's saying, but just the roars of the audience as if that's what you're, you know, the, the inverse image of this fantasy. But. I, I think it's worth putting in a word for the production designer, Boris yes. Levin, uh, also, who was born in the Tsar's Russia <laughs> in 1908 mm-hmm. and uh, did uh, George Stevens's Giant, among other movies. But this is like a very, very extraordinary piece of work on his part. I mean, you mentioned... Pupkin's basement layer, but also there's the waiting room. Oh God, yes. With this corridor just just out of reach, which seems to offer the answers to all of Rupert Pupkin's thwarted yeah. aspirations. And I mean, you 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 ask about things that the sort of comparisons that popped into mind. I thought a lot about Beckett watching this mm. time. I mean, not only do the various like manglings of Rupert Pupkin's name <laughs> seem like a very <laughs> Beckettian. Yes. There's Pumpkin. There's what's that? What else is pop, there? Pop, Pipkin, I think. Pipkin. Yeah. Um, there was like one with a K too. I yeah, think. Was there a Popkin one? <laughs> but I mean, the the production design by Boris Levin is such a big part of what makes this movie work. Yeah. Well, also, yeah, the product, this this kind of weird like hangover hangover of the '70s into the '80s kind of look to a lot mm-hmm. of things, you know. Like, I, actually, you know, I bet a lot of people would have liked Rupert Pupkin's basement design of the two giant cutouts that you know, like 
probably was you know modish at, <laughs> at some point, except when it's deployed by a psychotic individual, <laughs> at which point the value of the design. Uh, I, sh- I should mention you have a pumpkin suit here, don't you? I believe the museum has in, the, in its collection. In its collection? I didn't know that. Yeah. Not on display, but in its Gotta collection. Gotta trot that bad boy out. I, we should. <laughs> I've well, never, I've never been to that. Worn it. I've never been to that store, Daffy's, that advertises like three suits for ninety nine dollars. Never been to Daffy's. I've never been to Daffy's. You've been to Daffy's. Nick and I are from New York. We've been to Daffy's. <laughs> <laughs> I assume those are Daffy suits. That's oh, just, I'm sure. But from yeah, well, well, they're all seersucker. So maybe he got them imported from Alabama. I don't know. They're very. They have such a unique look. It's such a the three it's piece. It's a look. Seer, it's definitely a look. Yeah. Um, like the, the suits are fine. It's everything that goes with the suits that kind of like destroys the suits. But <laughs> but the what I was gonna say about production design. It actually his his basement reminds me of Jack Fisk's work in Messiah of Evil of all things. Oh. I don't know if you've ever seen Messiah of Evil, yes. but like the way that that the, the the house in Messiah of Evil has all these sort of you know, realistic, photorealistic artwork along the walls that make you, it sort of transforms that space into mm-hmm. a into a third space. But if, if you think about the practical process of Rupert Pupkin putting that space <laughs> together, yeah. like what well, he's going to like a printer and getting a wall wrap. Yeah. Or, those, or those standees. That was, you know, insane things that pop in your head. It's like, well, what does the guy at the copy shop think about the Liza Minnelli standee that this guy's yeah. coming in for another... Jerry Langford standee. Well, that's a that's also a bit in the uh, Steve Martin Charles Grodin comedy, The Lonely Guy. Oh, it's a, uh, <laughs> which we can just segue into a lengthy discussion of now. I know that you could dominate that. You know, one thing I kind of elephant in the room. We haven't actually maybe we haven't actually talked a lot about De Niro's performance in a way. Yes, yeah. as, as an actor, because for me it's fascinating. Because again, going back to Taxi Driver, just De Niro that that kind of archetypal De Niro thing of being this bizarre clown clownish smile he does that can always mm-hmm. just totally unsettle you you know and that's like this that's the, as you were saying the mask never slips here well it, it weirdly converses with a movie that he must have been shooting in very close conjunction with this which is Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America mm-hmm. which also has this bizarre ambiguous ending which may or may not be an elaborate self-justification that he's putting on for a betrayal that leads to the death of his three closest friends and it ends with this you know the fabulous final shot is him on a pallet in a chinatown opium den just giving this rictus idiot (laughs) grin as he stares at the camera which is not that terribly far from the weird purgatorial ending of oh, yeah. this film with, with with the blood red suit as he just listens to this this like audio mise on a bim of Rupert Popkin ladies and gentlemen <laughs> wonderful <laughs> over and over again yeah or that, that he's getting more material in prison because that's a great place to find relatable <laughs> yuck yuck material for the for the American work, people worked for, work for Tim Allen but oh that's the, right um <laughs> But I think it's interesting going back to this performance in terms of thinking about De Niro as a comedian, because he, in, in some ways, like the, the latter 
20 years of his career, he's actually been in com- more comedies than not. Right. And I remember when the big turn happened, I think like Analyze This was sort of like, or maybe it was Rocky and Bullwinkle, where like there was this major <laughs> turn where like all of a sudden De Niro was be, it was like, oh, he's going to own, he's, he's doing comedy. And it was kind of a weird thing that he was doing comedy. And like, well, he did We Are No Angels in the 80s, but otherwise he wasn't really doing comedy. But he's doing incredible work as a comedian here. And in fact, his, his, his performance as a stand-up comedian is spot on. Yeah. So this, this notion of him being a latter-day comedian is actually kind of, I think this puts a lie to it. But then that's the case with a lot of, like, this is a stand, is, 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 there's this and after hours you could call comedy, like the, as sort of like uh, anomalies in terms of Scorsese's oeuvre that being sort of comedies, but he's doing that all along. Every one of his films, actually, I feel like nearly every one of his films has a strong element of comedy. Scorsese's- the funniest movies yeah. ever. I mean, yeah. Silence, a movie which I think a lot of people think is this incredibly dour slog through you know religious doubt. Like, there's a very, very deep strain of absurdist humor in it. And I mean, the Isiogata performance yeah. is yeah. easily one of the funniest yeah. things that I saw last year. Right. And I mean, a big part of it is, you know, that there was a dialogue on this very stage sometime back between Scorsese and Jerry Lewis. Mm -hmm. And I remember they went into this lengthy digression where they were just sort of naming bit players who they thought had a great slow burn, Uh like you could cut away to and they would do a great slow burn. Mm -hmm. And it's so evident in this, all of the sort of minor roles, which are just so beautifully filled out, like his affection for that tradition that like bit player tradition like no part is a throwaway in this absolutely no part is a throwaway kim chan who plays the uh the houseboy uh, rupert pupkin calls him at, at langford's estate or uh, margo winkler the the receptionist everybody's funny in mm-hmm. this movie mm-hmm. like absolutely no tossed away bits it's a great way to sort of put that in context of that conversation about the slow burn because you can see every one of those you know, if, if anybody you see more than once is building towards something like that. Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, I mean, uh, shadowing, I mean, all the comedy is the sense that you're just, <laughs> you just feel so, I mean, the, the humiliation that goes underneath all of it, you know, and, 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 and that also is like a tax driver, you know, that, you know, is obviously psychotic, but he's obviously just a totally, you know, uh, abjectly lost soul in, in that movie. Um, and, and here it's, it's similar. I mean, he doesn't have the backstory of being a Vietnam veteran, but, uh, He's, he's yeah, just this bizarrely hollow uh, individual who's chasing this single one thing. So it's it's funny, and everyone around him is funny. The situations they get into is funny, but there's always just this like specter of just sadness when you're watching. And I think somehow that's that's something that De Niro particularly is doing in, in this 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 whole stretch of 10, 15 years. Even going back to something like Mean Streets, you know, where he's this the clownish kind of younger um, brothers getting into problems, and it's it's all like, eh, you, know, eh, you know, what are you doing, you know? But but uh, it's it's still like. Uh, <laughs> And, and Raging Bull is hilarious. And, and almost Raging every Bull, ra- almost yes. every Raging Bull scene plays out like a comedy. Yeah. Well, when he, maybe not when he's like beating his wife, but well, I mean, <laughs> but, but, but you I mean, can make that argument though mean. too. There is something. There's a physicality there. The whole thing. Like I mean, I'm not saying is like it's meant to be funny no. or you're meant to laugh, but I mean like the the grammar of it is actually quite comedic. Well, I think also. I mean, you can't help but feel like you know Jake LaMotta's transformation from like a prizefighter to obese. MC stand-up Don't comedian. Don't body shame Jake LaMotta. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just like how, I mean, you were talking earlier about the smile 
but I for really for me it's just like he does this little like nod with his head at these key moments when he's delivering his material that are just like so lived in and clearly like keenly observed there are just so many or like you know the way he raises his arms at certain moments and just like that's so that's clearly you know from being around out sitting in some shitty nightclub for hours and hours and hours and watching these guys you know bomb and but everyone being too politely to sort of like yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's just... Yeah, sort of, and, and talking with hands and that sort of thing. But, mm-hmm. but what's really interesting to me about De Niro in this and, like, other performances is that in the characters, there's there's so much something about holding your attention. Like, the character is so desperate to yes. hold people's attention. Yes. And this is one of the greatest actors who is constantly playing these characters that are desperate to hold your attention. It's this, it's just really interesting that's always struck me about, about him as an actor. I don't, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I note on rewatching is that he absolutely completely disobeys Jerry Langford's dictum about just letting the punchlines happen. Like he seizes on every single punchline. Every king needs a queen. I mean, it's, it's, it's very like uncomfortable making. Speaking of marriage, just like the, the part where his high school principal, who is now just as the piece comes on like television to marry them. Like that just slayed me. It's an amazing I, fantasy. Because it's not just an amazing fantasy. Because it's it's clearly a fantasy of somebody who's been watching television forever and really cannot separate their life from television. Obviously, but it's something that could be on television. Well, this like, was could... like Tiny Tim was married on the Tonight exactly, Show. Exactly. Yeah. When was that? Probably not all that terribly long Feels before. Like yes, yes, ten years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think late sixties people here probably know better. Oh, okay, but but yeah, but not that long beforehand. Sure. But I, I mean, I don't know if they they were you know savvy enough to take a commercial break in between the actual vows and like the build up. That's the, the showbiz genius of his fantasy. Exactly. Well, he that's what a, I mean. It's he does like a full so... one eighty too. I love it. He like fulls turned around fully yes. around to address the camera. <laughs> Tune in next time. <laughs> that high school uh, principal. <laughs> Well, speaking of, you know, no such thing as a bit part, just so glad to see Dr. Joyce Brothers, Gore Vidal. That, <laughs> what I, show is this? What I, a great I, show this would be to watch. I was thinking, like, the one thing that's missing is I want to see, like, 30 seconds of Gore Vidal just, like, talking about Lincoln <laughs> or something like that. That's the one thing that I think is sort of missing in the movie. Gore Vidal was too busy. Tony Randall, quite good. Very quite good. Quite good in his little moment. Mm-hmm. When is he not? Always good. Always constant. This is right around Love Sydney time. I feel like he had a big hit on BC around this time. Um, People have been so patient just to sit. Should should we see if anybody has any questions? Just if anybody has anything they want to address or bring up, things that we're not talking about in terms of King comedy? Concerns. Or anything about Scorsese you want to hear us address? Outrage. It's also fine if you don't. It's okay if you don't. (laughs) I'm just really appreciative of you all here, so I just wanted to put it out there. I had a feeling in watching this this time, there are a lot of similarities in style, with uh, including visually with uh, After Hours, which I guess was made a couple of years later. Is yeah. that right? Do you think so? Yeah. Thank and you, af- yeah. After Hours seems like it has a little more sweep to it. I mean, maybe I'm thinking of like that sort of wonderful camera movement that goes sort of flying through the office at the end. But I mean, I, I think it's, it, it seems to me a little more restrained in part because it's internalizing some of these like televisual visuals. I mean, there are a lot of 
shot reverse shots. I mean, it does make great use of exteriors and like midtown Manhattan, mm-hmm. and it does have a nice swing to it when it goes out of doors. But I mean, there are also there's a fair amount of medium shots of people delivering their lines. Well, there's also, and I'm curious about, uh, I wish I'd sort of looked into this, because uh, it's a fair question. I was thinking a little bit about Scorsese's 80s and how this sort of pivots to that and how, like, it's it's his first film without Michael Chapman is, is his DP from the f- previous films, which really sort of defined in some ways how he was making films or how they looked. And this looks very, very different. It's very quite, del- it's quite deliberate to have a different DP for this film and have a look. But I'm curious what, and what sort of talent or, or what crew he carried over to After Hours from here. There are quite, there are differences, but I also do wonder if there's, a, there's another era that begins here in terms of who he's working with. For me, I, just for me, I, I can't ever separate. How would I say this? Because I feel like, you know, when you see the inside of Sandra Bernhardt's apartment and it's like Barry Lyndon with all the candles and the candelabras. Well, I, I think she's like one of the uh, like degraded descendants of an Age of Innocence yes. character. Just the way she lies on like the daybed where she's like waiting. She's clearly waiting for Rupert to leave so she can just like jump all over Jerry. Well, and then here's a here's the thing like Masha would a hundred percent have a reality show. Oh yes, like <laughs> her, all of her problems would be taken care of <laughs> because there is no way she a was... camera crew would not be willing to follow her around. Yes, unlike everyone else, she was born too early. Yeah, as opposed to being born. Thank too God, late. society has developed that way <laughs> <laughs> dealing with these individuals in such a wonderfully evolved fashion. Yes. Yes, but I mean, I mean, but I, I bring up her apartment and just how it's styled because it's, it, and even even the way that he's bound is like foreshadows what happens to the main character and how he's encased in this crazy plasticine paper mache body cast, you know, because he was just really horny and he couldn't stay in one night, you know, he's being punished. But we can we can end it there because <laughs> it's all about male, like that. After ours is all about male horniness. It's right. and that's why it feels so expansive. Sure, sure. But before we end... We're showing After Hours uh, in a couple of weeks. I think the first week of March, if you're all coming back. Is it on 35? It is on 35. Well, yeah. it contains the greatest shot in all of Scorsese, which is at a urinal. And it is a... Yes. Yeah, I'll just say that. Don't spoil it! <laughs> the single greatest shot in the oeuvre. <laughs> For the for in the installation upstairs at the Museum of the Living Image, there's uh, this the you should get cancer um, bit is there's a montage of New York. You should only get should cancer. only get cancer. Only yes. That which is like one of my favorite New York sh- scenes <laughs> ever, as well as the after hours uh, ice cream truck bit, which are you know. Well, as we always do, could we each go around and say a film that we've seen recently that we liked? This does not count. <laughs> Yeah, we usually don't do these right after watching a movie, so... Yeah, I know. It's a real so Nick, tricky one. Well, Nick, Nick and I were recently at Sundance. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go with something I didn't see at Sundance. Okay, go Last cool. night, I uh, was uh, going through my Val Lutens mm. and revisited The Leopard Man nice. by Jacques Tourneur. Mm. And uh, I'll just say the basic premise, the thing that sets all of the action and the film in motion is sort of small-time show people coming into a New Mexico town and trying to upstage a uh, woman who is performing with clicking castanets and playing into an appetite for local color. And uh, 
in order to upstage this woman, they rent a leopard, which uh, then just gets loose in the nightclub, runs amok, and kills a poor Mexican girl. And it is absolutely an absolutely mortifying dissection of privilege run amok. And that at least is the like launching off point for it. I was impressed anew by the genius of Mr. Tornor. Mm. Nick or me? Or- yeah, I mean, I, I, I did do realize what I saw recently, but I almost feel like it's been a recent film that I did on a previous podcast. But I saw a camera person with someone who had not seen it. Um, I, but we've sort of gone on <laughs> about this film already, but uh, still good. <laughs> still really did good. you have a new thought? Did you have a new... Uh, I mean, I, I was just, again, just impressed by the, the tightness of the like associative, just the editing, um, you know, cutting between prayer at, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a mosque, a prayer call, and um, ballerinas dancing around a, a Christian cross in some sort of dance. It, it was just this one sequence came to mind, but just making this through line of religion in like a series of three or four sh- shots um, and just, I don't know, so much on its mind beyond just being some cool grab bag of neat shots from different documentaries. It's mm-hmm. just the, the editing there is is, is is remarkable. Am I wrong that it's Nels... Nels Bankerter. Nels Bankerter, who did the editing there. So yes. shout out to Nels Bankerter. Yeah, and took home the editing prize for Cinema Honors in this very stage a couple of weeks ago. Oh. Yeah, he's a fantastic editor, and and definitely like the the unsung hero of that film. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I I know that there were several film comment podcasts from Sundance, where a lot of people weighed in about films. So I don't want to also cover familiar territory, but uh, I mean, we'll, we'll bleep it out if we've done. You can do that. <laughs> um, I know you talked about Mudbound, which is a film that I I was was very very interested in um, at the time, and interested in seeing more people see it. Let's see. I just watched Strong Island uh, documentary, which um, I'm still puzzling over, which is a good thing, I think, from a couple of days ago. A personal documentary that uh, is also very stylized and very stylized in the way that it approaches its own personal recording and uh, testimonies. A film set on Long Island, uh, or a family, uh, African-American family in Staten Island. Uh, on Long, ooh, slip, I'm from Staten Island. Uh, off on, on, on Long Island, sort of reckoning with a murder of a family member from, from uh, 25 years ago. And uh, a ghost story, which you probably also talked about on a podcast. No. The David Lowry film, which I was... We did not. Uh, we did not. Surprised by. David Lowry has made films like Ain't Them Body Saints and uh, the recent Peach Dragon Disney film made a, a film he, he basically he went back and made a film with Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck with whom he made uh, Ain't Them Body Saints and it's sort of a parlor romance piece that is very much straightly it's very much what it sounds like in terms of a ghost story and I don't want to it's it's I'm sure it's 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 hard not to spoil that film because uh, every still shot that they could possibly use is going to spoil some of its main gags or main giveaways. Um, but it was sort of thrilling to see an American filmmaker kind of take advantage of the strengths of a low budget, you know, modest set like that. And he winds up making a film very much like a Pichipong where it's ethical, um, where it's surreal and funny, and it does all these things at the same time. Um, so I was really taken aback by that and impressed. And can we just have a word for this being brought to us by Daffy's clothes? <laughs> clothes that will make you. And Daffy's you. and Sleepy's. Is that, is that, is that actually? Both. I'm worried it's some other store, but I remember. Co- clothes that will, will make you and not break you? Yeah. 
So I'm actually, it's because we recorded this before the Sundance podcast that I actually, I saw at Metrograph because they're doing um, univer- this series called Universal in the 70s and it's really incredible. Um, I saw uh, Puzzle of a Downfall Child after seeing it on YouTube, which is not a great way to see that movie, but it's a way to see it. And yeah, I don't know. It was, I, you know, it's just a really beautiful. I love Jerry Schatzberg, and it's just a very beautiful film. And I guess I don't know if you want me to hear me talk about it more. Listen to next week's show. <laughs> I'll just cheat. <laughs> I think I, I thought I think I saw that here 15 years ago. Oh. Aroundabouts. So much has happened here. <laughs> so much. I saw, I, I saw um, the interrupters here. That yes. was the last thing I saw here, and it was really good. All right, enough plugging for this play. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to buy the book. They've made a book. Buy it. All right, well, thank you guys. And, th- and thank you to the Museum of Moving Image for hosting the Film Comment Podcast. Thank yeah. you all for sticking it out. And now, the look at the artifacts on display at the Museum of the Moving Image. I took a tour of the museum's Scorsese exhibition with Chief Curator David Schwartz, who gives the inside scoop on the mastery and the very personal touch in Scorsese's filmmaking. And we are deep in the heart of the Martin Scorsese exhibition that is running from now until April 23rd. Could you talk a little bit about the impetus for this exhibition and what sort of materials are here, why people should be excited? Right. Well, actually, we're standing in the New York section of the exhibition right now, and Scorsese, in many ways, is the ultimate New York filmmaker. But the exhibition itself originated by the Deutsche Kinematek, a film museum in Berlin. And uh, they do great exhibitions. They had a relationship with Martin Scorsese and decided to do a full-blown exhibition. So they put together an exhibition that opened a few years ago. And it's been touring around the world. It was at the Cinematheque in Paris, and it was in Australia before us. But this is the first venue in the United States. And it's a comprehensive look at Scorsese. It's, it's about his films and his filmmaking, but it's also about his life and his love of cinema. So it's something that was very dear to us in a lot of different ways. And um, he basically came to us and asked if we would be the New York venue for it. And there are all sorts of materials here. There are you know, posters, sort of like installation clips. Maybe we could go now to some uh, highlights. Sure, absolutely. So just about everything that's on view in the exhibition is from his personal collection. This is material that he held on to. What I like about the way it's organized is the, the sections sort of there's overlap between the films and, and his life. So the first section of the exhibition is about family. You know, and family is important in his films, but we also know how important his family life and heritage w- was to him, you know, defining him. So, so right now we're standing in front of a, a small dining room table and chairs that were actually in his apartment uh, on Elizabeth Street in Little Italy. So he had many, many meals at this table. We have a clip from Italian-Americans, so we'd see his parents eating at this very table. But he's talked about like the, all the meals he's had here with people like Francis Ford Coppola and Sergio Leone, who, who visited him in Little Italy. And, and on the wall, just so our listeners can get a sense, we got, we got Mona Lisa Repro, we have a Martha Washington, a George Washington. Right. So, so, and then there's family photographs, and there's a whole wall of photographs of, of um, Scorsese and his family. Of course, his parents were 
you know, always had cameos in his films. And one of our first connections at the museum to Scorsese was that he likes to show movies to his daughter. So a few years ago, he wanted to show 2001, A Space Odyssey, to his daughter, Francesca. She was 11 years old at the time. But he had to do it the right way, which meant in 70 millimeter. So his office called us up, and we agreed to give him the theater on a Saturday morning. And he brought in a print from Toronto and came out here uh, with his daughter and a few friends, and they watched uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Wow. Yeah. That's, <laughs> wow. All other dads bow down. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> yes, he, he's a good father. Yes. And Francesca loved the movie, so she's been raised well. Okay, good. But, um, <laughs> As I said, a lot of the exhibition deals with Scorsese's love of cinema. He obviously had a very close relationship to Michael Powell. Mm. He introduced Powell to Thelma Schoonmaker, and they were married. Uh, Powell admired, there was mutual admiration. I mean, Powell loved Scorsese's films, and to Scorsese, um, Michael Powell's movies like Peeping Tom and many of his other movies were you know, really important to him, um, movies like The Red Shoes. So we have some great props from classic movies. We're looking at the actual Red Shoes <laughs> from The Red Shoes, which uh, Scorsese collected at some point many years ago. And then this is actually my, my favorite piece in the whole exhibition. It's um, a bouquet of flowers from the movie Vertigo. Oh, and, wow. and it's to me, this is like mind-boggling that this exists. You know, these are actual flowers. It's not like fake flowers. Right. Uh, this is the bouquet that we see Kim Novak with. Um, and so it's about 60 years old at this point. Wow. So that's an amazing piece of film history. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I come and kneel down to this every day before I start work. <laughs> Um, the section that we're in right now is about cinephilia, basically. It's about his love of movies. There's a whole section here about his early efforts to do film restoration. So in the late 70s, spearheaded um, an, an effort to get Kodak to print film stock that would last longer, that wouldn't fade away. And, and then he became very involved, of course, with, uh, with restoring films. So there's letters here from a lot of great directors who were um, early supporters of the cause. We see letters from Terrence Malick and Michael Powell and Andre Vida, Frank Capra. Oshima. Uh, yeah, Oshima. <laughs> there's also just sort of fan letters uh, here from Godard and Bresson and Kurosawa. Actually, this is connected to, to silence in a funny way, but okay. th this is, these, you know, Scorsese appeared in the Kurosawa film Dreams, and, right. which was filmed in 1989. And so it was actually during the production of Dreams that Scorsese took the time to read his copy of Silence. Uh. He was in Japan, and he got inspired to make Silence back in 1989. But this, shows, this is, just shows the, the relationship, the friendship that Kurosawa and Scorsese had. You had yeah. mentioned your favorite piece, and this might be my favorite piece, which is a storyboard uh, for The Eternal City, is as of yet uncompleted, unmade <laughs> film, uh, drawn by an 11-year-old Martin Scorsese. Right. And it even has a uh, fake production logo, Marsco production, yeah. in 75 five millimeter cinemascope. Right, I love that it's <laughs> 75 millimeter. It's even Big, bigger. Even bigger. Um, but, but actually, uh, it's in the proper aspect ratio. So this was drawn, I think, it was, I think this was drawn in 1953. So it was just when cinemascope was started. I mean, if this was probably a year after The Robe came out that uh, Scorsese drew, you know, made the storyboard for this um, Roman epic film. It's beautifully drawn. I mean, it's like a beautifully drawn comic strip. And it's the proper aspect ratio. So yeah. the, the frames of the storyboard are in widescreen. Mm -hmm. And everything is colored in meticulously. Yes. 
you know, famously, Scorsese had just a lot of time uh, because of his asthma. He spent time watching movies and reading books about movies and apparently making these very elaborate storyboards. But, you know, the idea that he was, like, thinking of himself as a filmmaker at that time, you know, directed and produced by Martin Scorsese. We see another frame, and there's a logo for the studio. We got, it's uh, quite a lineup. We have <laughs> Jack Palance, Rita Moreno, Richard Boone, Jeff Moran, Hans Conried, right. Anthony Quinn, Elsa Martinelli, Don Adams, Dean <laughs> Jagger, John Carradine, and mm. a cast of ten thousands. So it's quite. It's, there's lots of. It looks like there's lots of uh, centurions whipping people, yeah. arguments in the courtyard, etc. It's, yeah. it's a. I don't know. It looks pretty good. I would watch it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. After silence, it might be a while before you can get that. <laughs> budget to make it properly yeah. but um, yeah but his storyboards are great throughout and actually oh, yes. the, the the Deutsche Kinematek did an exhibition years ago about storyboards and mm -hmm. that's how they met Scorsese because they exhibited some of his storyboards we're walking over towards one from uh, you know set from Taxi Driver he really conceived every every shot in a film so these storyboards are very detailed I love the taxi driver ones that are, are in, in sort of charcoal, but there's uh, little splotches of red for the blood. <laughs> but we just did an event here with Rob Legato, the special effects uh, supervisor, mm -hmm. and he talked about his first meeting with, with Scorsese, and Scorsese kept repeating, you know, I design every shot in, in my films. He just wanted to make it clear that, you know, even if he's bringing in... He worked, of course, with amazing collaborators, but Scorsese really did conceive very carefully every single shot in yeah. a film. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. awesome. Uh, one of my, my favorite stories in terms of um, how Scorsese used to study films was he loved Tales of Hoffman, the Powell film. And the way that he would, he would study that film was uh, he would go to the Donnell Library in 53rd Street, part of the New York Public Library system, and, and check out their 16-millimeter print. But about half the time that he would go and take the print out, somebody else would have it out, and it turned out that was George Romero. <laughs> so they were sort of uh, sharing the print essentially and they would each take turns because uh, that's one of Romero's favorite or it might be his favorite film but there was one print in the New York library system so it was put to good use I would say I would agree <laughs> you know now we're in the music section of the exhibition which looks at Music is so important in so many different ways to Scorsese. One, you know, of course, with Mean Streets, he really revolutionized the use of pop songs to counterpoint the action on the scene. Mm -hmm. um, this was very early. You know, there weren't that many films at that time that used so much, you know, so many pop tunes throughout right. the entire movie. Now it's commonplace. Um, so we're looking at a box right now of. Um, of 45 singles that was, uh, th and this was um, Scorsese's collection from the 50s. I think the years, oh, 1955 to 58. So long before he was making films, he was collecting, you know, 45 singles and cataloging them very carefully. And uh, this box, uh, we're looking at his index, his like typewritten index. <laughs> so here, this includes um, his uh, 45 for Rang Tang Ding Dong, which is a song used in Bringing Out the Dead. Mm -hmm. Of course, a, a lot of the songs from Mean Streets are, are here, and these are just, you know, records that he played and just were stuck in his memory, and then, then, like, many, many years later, he would pull them out and throw them into his film. You know, and of course, he also, in addition to the pop music in his, in his films, he's working with great composers. He had, you know, the idea for Scorsese that Bernard Herrmann, who scored 
Citizen Kane and, and the great Hitchcock films would do the score for, for Taxi Driver. And yeah, the, this, the exhibition opened here at the museum the same month that Silence came out. And, you know, this is, we're now in a little section in the, just off the lobby at the museum, um, devoted to silence as production materials from the film. So um, this is, we actually start with his copy of the book, which was given to him um, actually by the Archbishop in New York after a screening of The Last Temptation of Christ, which is, of course, very controversial when it, when it opened in 1988, so, but um, he got this copy of the book and then read it the next year when he was in Japan working with Kurosawa. And then uh, we walk over here to a script, pages from a script, and this draft is dated uh, December 18th, 1992. And this is, <laughs> this is, so this is a draft of silence written by Jay Cox, who wrote the screenplay of the film that was made, basically, 24 years later. These are recent, so we're looking at storyboards that were done for the production. I mean, so they're more um, exquisite than the, than the taxi driver ones. I mean, they're, they're lovely drawings. Um, so we see Scorsese's drawings, and then next to that are sketches by Dante Ferretti, who's the production designer, which are beautiful. I mean, these are, these are just a handful of the, of the drawings. And then we have production design sketches so, and then a few religious, you know, a artifacts. Few religious artifacts from the film. Yeah. Yeah. The very, these are just very meaningful pieces in the film. I mean, you can, you know, look closely at these little notebooks and bags and, you know, you can appreciate the detail. You know, you're, you know, you can see detail here that you would never really catch on, on film. You know, silence, you know, which is not going to go down as his biggest commercial success, but you really do get a sense of how personal it was to him. Right. I mean, you see a number of projects in the exhibition. I mean, Gangs in New York was another one that was... He started thinking about Gangs in New York around 1970, mm -hmm. and it just was many, many years in the works. So you just see how personal it was, you know, and I'm, I'm a big fan of silence. I actually think it's, it's just connects deeply with, with his other work and Absolutely. his themes. I mean, I think he, of course, hoped it would be more commercially successful, but he, you just really feel like he made a film that he had to make. I mean, a film that was in him and was very meaningful to him. Right. And I mean, obviously, if you walk around the exhibition and you were to think of how people received a lot of those films up there, which are now considered classics or yeah. just are so much richer with time, it's like, well, who cares? Well, that's true. I know. That's you know, true. It's I mean, too bad that it can't be, like, appreciated at its time as any good thing should be appreciated, but still, yeah, it's like... Yeah, no, you can go you know. through a list of films that were not commercially successful. I mean, Taxi Driver was a big deal at the time. Like, right. he was sort of tapping into a zeitgeist and that connected in a way. But there's so many of his films that just um, took years. I mean, I remember when King of Comedy came out, and yeah. there was, like, a small group of people. And now people think, regard that as one of his greatest. And... Mm -hmm that will happen. At some point, that'll happen with Silence uh, and with his other films. But um, there is an uncompromising quality that you, you, know, you feel throughout, you know, when you walk through the exhibition. Mm -hmm. you know, when you're, and you're walking around and there's a violence to the language and confrontations. Mm -hmm. There is this uncompromising quality about his work. You know, I like that we open the exhibition with um, his short film, The Big Shave, mm -hmm. from 1967, which is a man standing in front of a mirror and he keeps nicking himself and get, and blood starts gushing out of his neck and face, and it's uh, incredibly violent. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was like a little student film he made at NYU, but yeah. he had that impulse 
to um, confront his audience that way and make something kind of shocking. So we had to have some discussion here at the museum, like how do we present that in a museum? You know, there's a number of uh, warning signs throughout, you know, before you enter the Scorsese exhibition. Be prepared. Don't take your children. (laughs) Or if you do, it might say something about you. Or if you do, take responsibility. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, All right, well, this was excellent. Thank you so much. Great, my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>